Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight into today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I'm your host, Brian Lastly. Brian, World War II is in the news again. I don't know that it ever left. Yeah, us. it seems it seems like we have been waiting for well over a decade mm-hmm. uh, for this what is now going to be an Apple TV miniseries, uh, Masters of the Air, based off the book by Donald Miller. Uh, you know, the whole story of strategic bombing is always uh, one that has drawn in a lot of people, including us. I think into the field of uh, looking at air power history. So I think it's appropriate that we talk about it in a lot of detail today. We're going to get into some specifics. So we're joined today by Dr. Luke Truxell, who's author of Uniting Against the Reich, The American Air War in Europe from University Press of Kentucky. Luke, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. And, uh, you know, I'd like to say, you know, uh, Kentucky picked great timing with releasing the book right before the TV series. But uh, I don't know if that was just good timing or uh, if it was premeditated. (laughs) Yeah, that's perfect. Hopefully... Hopefully, uh, whether whether it was done on purpose or not, hopefully it helps sales. <laughs> I hope so, too. Well, speaking of getting into this project and into this topic, you've got a really interesting story in your preface where you talk about, you know, starting the research for this project and how going to the archives kind of changed your opinion on a few things, which is really interesting. Tell us about that start to this project. Why did you write this book in the first place? Well, uh, I got started in kind of looking at air power as a intern uh, at Abilene Christian University uh, as uh, the Russell Strong intern for the 306 Bomb Group Association, which is uh, more famous uh, for being kind of the main foundation for the plot of the te- uh, the movie 12 O'Clock High. That's how I got into air power. And uh, also as a result of that, I got to do some public history work a little bit, one of which was producing short little five minute uh, documentary uh, on Jimmy Doolittle. And I became obsessed with Jimmy Doolittle, as anybody who studies the 8th Air Force does at some point. You go through that Jimmy Doolittle phase. You know, one of the things that when I came to North Texas uh, to write uh, my master's uh, thesis and eventually what would evolve into this project is I was going to write how Doolittle got it right and Acre got it wrong. I was dead set on that. It's one of the interesting things where you kind of come in, you already know what you're going to write. You know what your thesis is going in to talk to your advisor. Uh, my advisor at the time was uh, Dr. Robert Satino. And uh, he actually had to tap the brakes on that. He said, you know, one, to some degree, that book has been written. Uh, But two, he said, before you even do that, I think you need to look at 1943 a little closer. And so I looked at 1943 and I looked at uh, the air war in 1943. And when I went to the archives, uh, I went there with uh, there's there's a group of us. And uh, the two people who helped me the most were Dave Music and Bill Nance. Nance has uh, published a couple of books with the uh, University of Kentucky Press as well. And so uh, as we were doing our research, uh, one of the things I kept noticing is there's a lot of infighting in 1943 between everybody, fighting over resources, fighting over personnel, fighting over aircraft, supplies, you name it, uh, fighting over target selection, fighting over doctrine. And basically, I was talking about this at dinner with uh, Dave Music and uh, Bill Nance. And they said, it doesn't seem like anybody's on the same page based on what you're describing. And so that little bit of a question just kind of, you know, nobody seems to be on the same page. That little comment right there at dinner, when I went to the archives the next day, I started thinking about it going, no, they're not on the same page. There's no central command authority. There's nobody calling the shots. You have everybody pursuing their own separate air war to the detriment of the whole. 
And so that's what really turned things around. And I started looking at 1943 differently as, you know, we talk about the reasons why things change in 43 to 44, instead of looking at it from the Doolittle aspect and looking at it from the long range escort fighter aspect, I, I started looking at it from how do they fix this whole command structure that is just, you know, basically broken up. It's all separated in different theaters. And again, we're not just talking about different air forces. We're talking about different air forces in two different theaters of operations, the European theater of operations, but also the Mediterranean theater of operations. So we like to think of, you know, the European theater as just one big theater. It's not, it's two theaters. In fact, it's three, if we're going to be more accurate and we count the Eastern front, which we should. And so when you throw in that, you have three different theaters of operations. You have ultimately when we get to the 44, for American Air Forces, but then you throw in the British Air Forces, you throw in the Balkan Air Force, you throw in the Russian Air Armies. I mean, you know, coordinating all these air operations is a bit difficult. And when I went to the archives again, I basically decided I made a tactical decision that, you know, probably best to just focus on the Americans long term because it's a little bit easier to tell that story because when we look at the British and we look at, you know, uh, the Soviets, that's where diplomacy comes in. It's not as streamlined. And so there's a little bit of wrangling that goes on there that is a different book and a different story. But the Americans, it's a lot easier to tell how they were able to unify their air commands from 43 to 44 after they found out it simply did not work in 43. Yeah, you pay a picture that in 1943, the Allied bombing effort has some real problems. What were those problems and what was the cause of them? You know, uh, what I talk about is I talk about the command structure problems and, you know, I'll go through and give you the whole list of problems. And I'm still finding problems with the 1943 campaign, if that which we shock you. Unfortunately, with the historiography, we've gotten so tied down into the fighter issue that we haven't looked at these other problems. And I'm just looking at one of and I found another one this past year uh, accidentally uh, when I was uh, working on a piece for uh, uh, Schweinfurt. I'll talk about what I write about which is a lack of unity of command. Uh, in 1943, at, uh, in January of 1943, at the Casablanca conference, there are three factions going into that conference. There's Bomber Command, which is from the RAF. There's uh, the Air Forces associated with the fighting in North Africa in the Mediterranean theater, the uh, 9th Air Force and the 12th Air Force. And they're conducting their own air war in those theaters. But then you also have the American 8th Air Force bombing out of the United Kingdom. And they can't agree on purpose and what the future of the air war in Europe and the Med should look like. And so as a result, at Casablanca, they decide, you know, let's just agree to disagree and pursue our own separate air wars and air offensives. So you have, you know, the air forces associated with Eisenhower, the 9th and the 12th. They are going to do long range air interdictions. And on occasion, one occasion, they will conduct strategic bombing. And it is a big disaster at Ploestian Operation Tidal Wave on the 1st of August, 1943. The 8th Air Force will pursue its own strategic bombing offensive, targeting ball bearings, targeting uh, aircraft production. And they will also have to, as a part of selling the idea of pursuing the strategic bombing offensive, have to attack other targets as well, which includes submarine pins to please the Navy. So there is a little bargaining going on here in trying to sell this idea of a strategic bombing offensive. You have to get the Navy on board. You have to get Marshall on board. And, you know, the book talks a lot about that, you know, the politics of basically getting the air offensive started. And again, doctrinally, the British Americans were never going to agree. 
Churchill couldn't convince the Americans to switch, and the Americans weren't going to convince the British to switch. They had their reasons. Uh, the Americans believed in the uh, doctrine of daylight precision bombing, attacking key nodes, attacking key points in the economy, which would lead to the destruction of the German war economy. Whereas the British come up with a doctrine that I call kind of a, uh, it's a very cruel and pragmatic doctrine. They did try daylight precision bombing early in the war. It was a disaster. They suffered a lot of losses. They didn't think that you could sustain those losses in daytime and maintain a bomber offensive. But in addition to that, they found out that precision is not exactly precise in World War II. Uh, the famed Norden bomb site accuracy was getting your bombs within a thousand feet of the target. That doesn't mean hitting the target. It means getting it within 1,000 feet of the strike point. And we have a lot of cases. Uh, I was listening to another podcast uh, where uh, they were talking about, uh, I can't remember which one it was, but they were talking about how a lot of cases you'll have these bombs hit the building, destroy the building, but not destroy the machinery. And that happened at Schweinfurt on the second raid, is the building itself was destroyed, but a lot of the machinery was still operable. you know. And so, again, uh, the British realized you can't do that. And so, to preserve their force, and because they realized they can't conduct a precision bombing campaign, they switched to night bombing. And at night, the accuracy is much less. And so the only strategic target you can really attack is cities and conducting area bombing to attack German morale, attack the German citizens themselves. Now, this is a war crime. I'm going to be very clear. This is a war crime that they're going to be conducting. But at the same time, if you're going to conduct a strategic bombing offensive with the technology and the capabilities that the RAF's Bomber Command had at that time, and to preserve your force, you don't get a second Air Force. There is no, you know, multiple Air Forces coming out. This is it. And so to preserve their force and to uh, still strike at uh, the German homeland, uh, basically they turned turn to this very cruel doctrine, uh, which is night area bombing. And so these are doctrines at a big difference. We have a doctrinal debate. Uh, we also have with the Americans a debate over what the purpose of the air war should be between Eisenhower and eventually basically it's Eisenhower and Acre in 1943. So again, you have these three factions and they go their separate ways. So you're talking about this command structure and how, you know, everybody's kind of doing their own thing. And then that kind of changes, uh, you know, late 43 into 44. So I'm curious, you know, what is it exactly that changes? How does that structure change? And who's driving that change? Who's the person that can come in there and be like, okay, we need to all get on the same page and push us to get there. How does that change come about and what happens? It's not a change that happens overnight. Let me start there. If you've uh, read the book, you can see it happens over a course of months and it's a it, it kind of happens in phases. But uh, the big I would say the big moment, the big whoa moment is sometime after the uh, sometime in November uh, after the second Schweinfurt raid. That is when you start seeing a lot of communications. And, you know, this is normal. We see this sometimes with offenses when they culminate is sometimes it takes a while to realize your offensive has culminated and you have been defeated. And the Americans were clearly defeated at the end of October of 43. Acre didn't realize it at the moment. Arnold didn't realize it at the moment. No one realized it in, the, in that little moment. But by November, they clearly know they failed. They're looking at the timeline. And one of the key things that they need is air superiority before Operation Overlord. So Overlord's going to be the key driving factor in making everybody kind of, I won't say panic, but hit the acceleration button on changes. And so what they decide to do is when Dwight D. Eisenhower is made the Supreme Command Authority, or when he's made Supreme Commander of uh, Allied Forces in Europe uh, for Operation Overlord, 
In addition to that, he is made also the supreme command authority for the air war in Europe. You know, and so this means the air war will basically be what Eisenhower decides. He he gets the final say. Now, it's not this. This doesn't mean he's like, you know, in the details of planning missions or that. He basically his vision of what the air forces should be doing. That is it. And so Eisenhower, who had developed and cultivated a very good air command team in the Mediterranean theater in 1943, brings that team over with him and begins restructuring the American air forces underneath that air team. And uh, the key change within the air command, the first big key change is uh, Carl Spots being appointed the commander of all United States strategic air forces in, in Europe. This means he is in command of the 8th and the 15th Air Force, the new 15th Air Force now based uh, out of the Foggia Air Complex in uh, southern Italy. So when we see the 8th and the 15th now operating together, you now have Spots having the final say on strategic bombing operations. Now, he has the final say, but in conjunction with Eisenhower's wishes. So Eisenhower will veto him in the spring of 44 because Spots does want to go to oil. But at the same time, Eisenhower says, no, that's not going to work. It's not going to happen fast enough. Transportation needs to be the main goal. So, again, this doesn't mean, you know, Spots gets to do whatever he wants. He gets to command those air forces in conjunction with Eisenhower's vision of how the air war should look in 1944. In addition to those changes, Spots is a great bureaucrat. He realizes he can't just have the strategic air forces to concentrate and get the real maximum effort in terms of putting pressure on aspects of the German war economy and waging this air war. So he starts to restructure the tactical air forces into this new system where he basically is kind of running things. So the Ninth Air Force, he runs the logistics and the administrative offices through his own headquarters, which means while operationally they're supposed to report to another entity, the uh, Allied Expeditionary Air Forces under uh, Leigh Malroy, and Leigh Malroy does think he's going to get full command authority of the Ninth uh, Tactical uh, Air Force. Funny thing, uh, when the logistics and the admin offices run right through Carl Spots's office, yeah, you can have a say in operational planning. But they're all running right back to Spots and telling him, talking to Spots right after these meetings. And Spots saying, do this, don't do this, ignore him. And this leads to a lot of tension between Spots and Leigh Malroy because Leigh Malroy starts to learn that because of some of Spots' maneuvering bureaucratically, and Spots is really good at bureaucratic work and admin work, uh, he only has that command in name only. He does not command the Ninth Air Force at all. He does so at Spots' permission and Eisenhower's permission. And this leads to a lot of fighting in the spring of 1944 because Leigh Mowry is trying to pry this Air Force back away. And Spots like, no. In fact, there are times where Spots won't even show up to the meetings. He'll send uh, his deputy chief of operations, Fred Anderson, to the meetings and say, report back to me what he says. I, and I don't want to be around him. Spots doesn't, doesn't, he has no respect for Leigh Mowry. Neither did Arthur Harris as well. And so, again, this... A potential problem with this new air command system, which could have been Leigh Mowroy, and if you know the history of Leigh Mowroy, he is a problem with his personality and his need to control things. Well, Spots heads him off the pass because he makes it impossible for Leigh Mowroy to do anything about it because of the maneuvering behind the scenes. But going into another part, we've got the 12th Air Force in Italy. This Air Force reports to the Mediterranean Allied Air Forces. It's not a strategic air force. and 
ultimately it reports to the head of the Mediterranean Theater of Operations, which is uh, uh, Marshall Wilson. Uh, I think it's Jumbo Wilson. Well, funny thing, uh, the commander of the Mediterranean Allied Air Forces is a longtime friend and co-worker with uh, Spots, helped establish the 8th Air Force with Spots. That is Ira Aker. Aker, uh, at the end of 1943, is promoted to command of the Mediterranean Allied Air Forces, which means that if Spots needs that 12th Air Force to do anything that he needs it to do in Italy, uh, then he has a say there. So again, basically all these air forces now run through Spots either directly or indirectly. And Spots after the war made it very clear in an oral history. He was asked this in sometime in the summer of 45, right after the war, asked, you know, how does this whole thing work? And he says, you know, I could not have done it, you know, without uh, Ira Aker being the commander of the Mediterranean Allied Air Forces. We couldn't do it without uh, Tedder being the deputy supreme commander who was helping us with the diplomatic stuff with the British. And we couldn't have done it without Eisenhower. He says it was a true air command team. It is a team effort. And everybody had their role to play in this air command team. And so sometimes we get caught up in was Aker fired or was he not fired? And to be honest, Aker got caught up in it uh, during the December of 43, got really angry about it. But it's really a reassignment because Spots, and, and I actually wondered for the longest time what happened to Aker. Who made that call? It's Spots. You know, Aker thought it was Arnold, and then he thought it was Eisenhower. It was Spots, and Spots realized he needed a guy he could trust completely in command of the Mediterranean Allied Air Forces, who, who he could coordinate air operations with. So sorry to kind of give you the long story about all that, but that's just the personnel changes, and that's the very top of the personnel changes. If you look at the book, you'll see that there are Air Force commanders shuffled around. There's even staff officers shuffled around. So this officer shuffling is designed to basically streamline all the American Air Forces through Spots's office, and then he makes decisions in conjunction with the Deputy Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, which is Arthur Tedder, who Eisenhower calls his chief airman. And then you also have Eisenhower, who has the final say. Again, for those who are not familiar with how this works with the Supreme Command Authority, it doesn't mean he's picking out every mission. It means that they bring a plan to him, they bring multiple plans to him, and he says which one he wants. And so Eisenhower is giving the vision of what he wants for the air war. It is Spots' job to see that through and make sure all the air forces are on the same page. And it's Tedder's job to work the diplomatic angles and try to get the British to support it as well. That's a, I mean, just a phenomenal summary of everything's, uh, everything and everyone uh, working together. But let, let's go all the way to the top for a second. Eisenhower is really one of the key figures in your work. And I would think that most people don't tend to think of Eisenhower uh, as an air power minded individual. Uh, but what were his views on air power and how did he use aviation in the ETO? You know, Eisenhower is not a guy that, you know, when you when you read about the biographies of him and you read, you know, through his papers, you don't get, you know, a guy that's full of uh, what's the phrase air mindedness, you know, not a person that's fully embracing air power. He's not a Billy Mitchell kind of guy. But, um, you know, when we talk about Eisenhower, the way he views the role of air power in this war is it is to support the ground forces. It is a support weapon. It is in many ways what we use air power today. It is the strategic bombing campaign, the long-range air interdictions, and the tactical air forces, their job is to support the ground war. And how the ground war moves dictates the air war. I know that's not going to make me very popular in a number of air power circles, but 
the way Eisenhower views this air war is that the air war supports the ground war. And what the ground war needs, the air war will have to maneuver to support that. And so this is why we see Eisenhower order, you know, basically the air forces to concentrate on the things that they concentrate on in 1944. First up is the Luftwaffe. You know, we need to not necessarily decisively defeat them in a single battle, but we need to degrade their ability to prevent overlord from happening. And so that's where Spots basically takes the lead in trying to concentrate the American Air Forces on the Luftwaffe. And, you know, I do talk about Big Week, you know, and I give a whole chapter to Big Week. But, you know, I, I don't have time to talk about all the other air missions they did to degrade the Luftwaffe over time. It is a degrading over time. But. Big Week's a good example of how they were able to concentrate their air forces on German aircraft production with the goal of shooting down fighters. Now, Spots thought he could score some kind of major decisive victory in the air over the course of the week and shoot down and destroy German aircraft production, shoot down the planes and basically gain air superiority that way. What he does, in fact, it's not it doesn't happen the way he imagined it. Uh, he shot down a lot of German pilots. And so he degraded the quality of the and that quality never really recovers after February and March of 1944. And um, Dr. Muller over at uh, the Air War College has written a great book on the Luftwaffe and the Reich's defense and talks about how you see the quality and you see increases in air crashes by uh, Luftwaffe pilots. You see the quality of Luftwaffe pilots decline as this period goes on. So again, Eisenhower needed that. And that was the first big debate they had in January of 44. Leigh Malroy uh, was trying to help develop this transportation plan, the pre-bombardment plan for Overlord. And he said, don't worry about the Luftwaffe. We'll just gain air superiority on D-Day. You know, we'll just land the troops and we'll fight for air superiority. Then Carl Spots and him had a huge blow up over this. I think Harris got involved. Uh, uh, I know uh, I know Fred Anderson basically walked to Spots one day after that meeting where he said, we'll just win air superiority on D-Day. And Fred Anderson's like, you're not going to believe what I just heard in this meeting and was just outraged. And then Spots hit the roof when he heard that, and he went straight to Eisenhower. So this is the first big fight that they have. And Eisenhower is, again, the final word on this. And he says, no, we're going to focus on, even if it means we're going to delay the, the pre-bombardment, even if it means we're going to delay the tactical air forces from training to do TAC air, which they do. They delay the training of the air force on TAC air so it can support attacks against the Luftwaffe. So the Luftwaffe is seen as this first big objective that they got to remove. And they don't necessarily outright remove it, but they degrade it enough that they can move on. Next is the big debate, transportation or oil. This really turns into a nasty fight to the point where Eisenhower actually threatened to resign in March of 44. Uh, Send a letter to Marshall says, we got a meeting. I think it was on March 26th. The final meeting it was March 23rd or 26th. Eisenhower said, we got one more meeting left. And if they can't figure out this plan, if we can't get a final plan on this, then I quit. You know, and sent that to Marshall and put it in writing. I, was just, I, I saw that letter. I was like, oh, my gosh, how th this is how bad things have gotten over the pre-bombardment plan. And also the tensions between Lay Malroy and um, Spots and Harris, uh, because they just outright refused to work with him. Uh, but ultimately, uh, what happens is, is as they're doing the big briefing, uh, Eisenhower's big question, and so, and I think Tedder's the one that actually voices it, but it's Eisen, Eisenhower's on the same page as Tedder on this. But Tedder basically asked uh, Spots' oil expert, how long before we see the effects of the oil plan on the battlefield with the ground war? 
And he said, it'll take months. It'll be there, but it's going to take three to six months. And I just said, that's it. That's all I needed to know. Final decision, transportation plan. We're going to target rail because we'll have more immediate effects. We don't have to wait as long. I'm not ruling out oil in the future, but for overlord, rail targets. And we need to hit rail targets across Europe. So we see, you know, Operation Strangle. We see the bombardment of Romanian rail uh, in the Balkans. And not just Romanian rail, Bulgarian rail. You know, we see it in Yugoslavia. And we also see it uh, all throughout the Balkans. So, again, we see a number of transportation plans unleashed. And it's not just talking about rail targets. We're talking about bridges. We're talking about, you know, anything that can move major transportation. And it puts a stress on the entire network of movement. Uh, in terms of strategic movement of resources, in terms of operational movement, and moving troops around, you know, getting them to the battlefield. And we even see it tactically play out in bringing reinforcements to the battlefield all across the European front. And again, when we eventually move on to the little plan, after it becomes clear that the transportation plan is going well enough that they feel like they can now switch to oil, Spots gets the green light to switch to oil. He doesn't do so till after D-Day. And then... Uh, after D-Day and after it's a few days after D-Day that he kind of gives the final green light for the oil plant to move into full motion. At that point, you have two systems that kind of feed off each other. When you take out the bridges, when you take out the rail, when you take out the transportation network, what happens then is, is one of the ways in which to offset those shortages until the repairs are done is to truck it. You know, sometimes you have the motor vehicles. Other times you have to, uh, you know, you just use uh, horse and carriages, you know, in World War II. A lot of times when they're trucking it and they have to use the motor vehicles to basically get around the, out, the bridge that's out, that's increasing. That's building upon the oil crisis. So these two systems kind of feed off each other in the sense that, you know, you hit one and it creates a greater demand for oil to help with some of the supply shortages and help, you know, offset the rail damage. But at the same time, you're attacking oil and now you have an oil shortage. And so these two systems kind of feed off each other. And Eisenhower realized that in late May of 1944. And so when I say that his vision of the air war is one that supports the army from a strategic bombing aspect, you can see that in his target system selection. Now, in addition to that, something that ticked off the strategic bombing guys is that we see a lot of times in the med and we see it also uh, when he takes command uh, out of the United Kingdom and the fighting in France, when he needs strategic bombers for a attack air mission, he will use them. He will basically override his strategic bombing commanders and say, I need them. We see this in the fighting in Normandy. We see it a lot in Italy. This was a huge battle between Acre and uh, Eisenhower over the use of the B-24s uh, in Italy and Sicily. And uh, it continued all the way up until the end of 43. So again, uh, that's a point where I would say there's more division on is when Eisenhower decides there's a crisis in the ground war. I need the strategic bombers. I'm taking them. I'm using them to support the ground war. So, again, his vision of an air war is always one of, you know, the ground war comes first. The air war and the strategic bombing campaign must adapt to support that effort. That's fascinating. And, you know, a lot of what you're talking about you know, really brings home the kind of main point that you make in the book, which is something you say a lot, which is personalities matter, right? The relationships between these guys matter. They're the way they work together or don't work together. And sometimes there's, you know, almost like a soap opera aspect to some of this stuff, yes. uh, which is going on. And that, and all of that stuff, those relationships and those fights, 
they have effects uh, on the battlefield and how these things play out. Um, but I kind of want to to go real big picture with you um, just at the end here and and ask, you know, given all that stuff that you just talked about with the targeting and the different kinds of uh, campaigns, did it work? You know, this is one of the most debated questions in the field of air power history, so it's not really totally fair for me to ask you this. But did strategic bombing work? Was it effective in bringing out Allied victory in World War II? Well, I hope I'm not going to you gave me the question that's probably going to get me hunted in air power circles, uh, <laughs> you know, at the next conference uh, that I attend. Uh, but uh, basically, um, I, I don't want to come away saying that, you know, air power is decisive or it was the main reason why the allies won the war. It's a huge force multiplier. But the best way to look at air power and the way it worked in World War II is that, yes, it absolutely aided the allies. Yes, it gave them a huge advantage. But in of itself, by itself, it was not decisive on its own. So air power as a weapon that can win wars on its own, win battles on its own without ground troops, that will never happen. Uh, It has not happened. That dream that, you know, some of the early air power theorists had of air power basically being this weapon that can single handedly in wars, that never really does happen and it never will happen. Uh, I know that's me being very bold with that statement, but you will always need ground troops and air power works best when it works in conjunction with the ground war. And so it is a huge force multiplier. It can be decisive on the battlefield in support of ground troops, but it cannot be decisive by itself. Fair enough. I do have one more question I want to ask you because we've talked this whole time about, you know, personalities and a lot of it's kind of bureaucratic and we're talking about what happens in the admin office, which is very important. But what is your favorite airplane from this era, your favorite World War II airplane, if you had to pick just one? Um, Man, I'll go with the B-17, and here's why. The B-17 would get you back safely. If, if, if no, no, I'm not saying it would happen 100% of the times, but it was your best chance to get back safely. That thing could take a pounding and still make it back. I've seen reports. I've seen stories. I've been astonished by some of the photos I've seen of aircraft that basically crash land into England, and you're wondering, how is that thing even flying still? So in in terms of survivability, uh, I would pick the B-17. You know, uh, I know people like to go with the P-51. It, you know, has the sleek, you know, design and all that, you know, but I'm going to say some things that are probably going to get me yelled at. Um, (laughs) I think the P-51 is a little bit overhyped. And I think to some degree, uh, and here's why I say that. Everybody likes to talk about it as the long range escort fighter, and it deserves that credit. I'm not saying it's like, you know, it, it doesn't deserve its place in history. It did play a major role in turning around the air war. But you know what nobody, everybody talks about? is the drop tanks, the drop tanks that extend the range. And the logistics of that is still not really set up in 43 anyway. So they could have had P-51s, but they're still having drop tank problems in 43. You know, uh, so again, uh, one of my knocks against the P-51 is we obsess over, you know, the P-51 is this game changer. And it deserves it. To a degree, it def- I'm not saying it doesn't deserve any credit for what it did, but I think a better way to look at the P-51 and what I talk about in the book is that there's a whole set of changes that are happening at the end of 43 when we start to learn from our mistakes in 43. 
And I only write about one of those, which is command unity, uh, unity of command. But uh, if you look at the drop tank issue, that's like something Acre's trying to resolve, resolve uh, in October 43. And uh, so again, uh, you know, uh, that's something that I think if we start looking at the air war a little bit more, we might bring the P-51 down in terms of its importance in the air war. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying it's, you know, some insignificant factor. What I'm saying is that maybe we should put it into a bit more of a perspective. Well, similar to the way that a drop tank can extend the range of a P-51. For readers who want to extend their range in knowledge of World War II, check out Uniting Against the Reich, the American Air War in Europe. Uh, that's stuff from Dr. Luke Truxell, and it's from University Press of Kentucky. Luke, can we find more of you online anywhere? Yes, uh, I'm still on X, but I'm transitioning to, you know, the social media platform, which is fully embraced by air power, which is Blue Sky, because, you know, <laughs> Blue Sky is obviously, you know, something Billy Mitchell would have thought of as a social media platform for air power <laughs> historians. So, uh, yeah, I, I am on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, under my name, Luke Truxell, you can look me up. Also, I'm on Blue Sky under Luke Truxell as well. So those are two places you can find me. Fantastic. Brian, where are you at these days? Uh, same thing. Uh, you can find me on the website formerly known as Twitter. I have also moved over and am creating an emerging space at Blue Sky, both under my name, Brian Lastly. And you can also find me at brianlastly.com. And Mike, over to you. I am at mwhankins.com. And all of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email, write an article for submission to our website, please go to balloonsandrones.com contact. Thank you all, and we will see you next time.